Hello, graduates. It's okay. You can come out from under your duvet, although we don't blame you if you've been hiding under there. The job market is pretty scary at the moment. But never fear, Careers Talk is here, so just think of us as your personal gloom busters, as this week's pod is packed with advice to help you out from under the duvet and into the world of work. We've got Carl Gilliard, Chief Executive of the Association of Graduate Recruiters, and Martin Birchall, MD of High Flies Research, who have both released huge grad surveys in recent weeks, revealing where all the graduate opportunities are, as well as where they aren't. Plus, dear Julian is going to try and wean you off your Blackberry addiction and we have a gallery of great roles in the arts in the job's top 10. But first, guardian of graduates Harriet Minter and university lever lover Ali White (laughs) are here to help me, Kerry Eustace, review this week's headlines. But I'm going to start off this week and I've got the story about um, Teach First are going to get a £4 million grant from the government to boost graduate teacher numbers. Um, so Education Secretary Michael Gove has pledged the £4 million to fund Teach First and for the uninitiated, Teach First is like a teacher training programme. It's a charity where it takes the top graduates and places them into sort of deprived areas and um, you're in classroom from day one shadowing a teacher and it builds up your timetable <laughs> over time so you're, tra- you're sort of training on the job and there's a lot of leadership development in there as well so this year Teach First placed 560 top graduates in teaching posts but the increased funding will raise that up to 1,140 by the 2013-14 school year no it is it's the doubling the funding yeah. so um, it's obviously great to see an increase in graduate vacancies, but the important thing about mm. Teach First is the, the entry requirements. You need a 2-1 or above, okay. and also sort of really decent A-level or equivalent grades. So I think it's like 300 UCAS points. So mm-hmm. although there's more graduate jobs, again, it is for those in, who are achieving highly already. Um, and there was a really interesting stat that I read on the Telegraph website, and it said that the scheme has said... That 8% of all final year students at Oxford University applied to Teach First this year. Do you think that's really interesting? I think that is interesting. The only thing that I think is a little bit worrying about this is I was having a look on the Teach First website, and part of what they do is, as well as giving you teacher training, they also give you what they call leadership development. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they teach you about finance and marketing and kind of skills that you would use in business. Mm. And the idea of it is that it attracts the top graduates. Because they can then go, which is really interesting, bear in mind all the talk we've been having about interns not having any experience, they can then go to a big company after two years with Teach First and say, I have been teaching for two years, but I've also gained all these skills, which you really, really want. Hmm. And actually on their website, it says that um, after two years, only 55% of those who started with Teach First remain with it. Yeah, that's what I was just And thinking. the other 45% yeah. go into business of some sort, which is... I think, I mean, I don't know what the dropout rate is for PGC or something like that, but I think that's quite a high dropout rate. Yeah, it is. But then I do think what they do is really great. Yeah. And I think they do get people who would otherwise not think about teaching mm. into the classroom. Yeah, and getting teachers into challenging schools is a real priority of the Absolutely. government. It's mm. been another campaign that sort of preceded, not Teach First, but preceded this grant, the boost to Teach First, um, from the Training Development Agency for mm-hmm. Schools, and it was to 
you know, try and encourage teachers to work in challenging schools and sort of promote why it's a great environment and the impact yeah. that you can have. So, mm. and it's also another uh, example of the voluntary sector sort of picking up on some of the public service public services and recruitment of public sector workers so because sure. I mean that's the other thing that was in the news was that while they're giving four million to teach first they're taking 3.5 million I think it is away from teaching generally there's it's lots of lot. cuts in education yeah. like the, the building of new schools has had massive cuts yeah. as well so I think it is quite a controversial move but good for graduates anyway yeah. <laughs> um what else have we got Ali have you got a story well, I've got a, a story which is quite good news for graduates, but you have to be prepared to get on your bike, apparently. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> or, or, or another form of transport. But um, it's Ernst & Young um, so making a recommendation that graduates um, be prepared to you know, move to where the work is rather than you know, concentrate on the big major cities where you know, traditionally people think, oh, you know, I head to London or other big cities and hubs, really. But... Um, what they're saying is they have got plans to recruit more than 900 graduates and undergraduates to start work in 2011. But they're saying not all of these um, jobs available are located in UK major cities. Like they have offices um, to work for major global organisations like Ernst Young, which are based in towns up and down the country. So saying places like Reading and Southampton. And it, may, it was interesting because I actually worked in Reading myself and... We, we used to call it in the local paper I work for the Silicon Valley of the UK. <laughs> and we always felt we were a bit overlooked. We're very close to London. But there was um, you know, a wealth of different companies. All, and I think especially these days where it's more and more expensive to you know, be based in cities and these you know, people are moving outside. So I think the point is graduates need to be able to go where the work is. So I think that was quite interesting. And uh, you know, it's benefits for them, I would say. You know, perhaps cheaper rents and easy cheaper. to get yourself set up. Nice lifestyle as well. And if you go somewhere like Southampton or um, I was in Bournemouth the other day, mm. you're on the beach. So you finish yeah. work at five o'clock and you go to the beach. How lovely is that? Yeah. Oh, I think it's brilliant, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, I think the first instinct for a lot of people think, oh, you know, I must go to London, rent a room and find somewhere to, yeah. you know, somewhere to work or perhaps the equivalent up north. But I think we were all guilty of that. Aren't we? Yeah. Absolutely. And actually, I know people who, um, I went to University of Newcastle and people who stayed up in Newcastle afterwards and it was looked on as quite a kind of risky move to stay there. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of people that I stay up, who have stayed up there now, have really interesting jobs. So, so one guy runs a children's literary charity, another one does the backstage filming for Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and they got it because they worked for small regional companies yeah. who could then go in and undercut big London companies and get better commissions. What's your story? I love my story this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my story this week is about talking at work. Um, apparently... Britons spend on average 67 minutes every day talking about things that are unrelated to their job. My first thought on this was, is that (laughs) all? (laughs) Same here, yeah. (laughs) But apparently, according to the survey, this is costing British workplaces £2 billion a year um, in kind of lost revenue because everyone's sitting around chatting for an hour. But I actually think that although they're losing £2 billion because you're sitting around chatting you probably make that back in having a happy workforce. So if you had a, um, it's one of the view, if you don't like your work, you're more likely to call in sick, you know, you're more likely to leave sooner, mm-hmm. and that's all costs money to your employer. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you like who you work with, it makes going into work quite fun, and it's enjoyable, and you're less likely to call in sick, and you're less likely to zoom off after your three months, or whatever. You need to get yeah. back to work to carry on with the gossip. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, one of the great things I liked about this is they found that 52% 
um, of people who talk talk about what they watched on TV the night before. <laughs> and 34% said that their love life was the main topic of conversation. Um, and I think I would say on that, just be very careful what you share. <laughs> I think that's been one of Julian's tips before. Oh, yeah. Too much information. Too much information is never much. good. There's nothing worse than sitting next to somebody and thinking, oh, every time you look at them, just thinking, oh no, oh no, I don't want to think about what you've just told me. <laughs> I think it does give you a nice boost, you know. I think for the if you're working day, five minutes out, you know, and you feel a bit g'd up, and you go back to your work, you feel better. Now, if you check your email constantly, even when you're not in the office, and think about your bulging workload instead of your hectic social life, listen to this. Julian Lindley addresses the worries of someone who finds it impossible to switch off after work. In dear Julian. Hi, this is Julian Lindley back again to help you with your work worries. And today there's a brilliant letter from Stressed at Work. Uh, and Stressed at Work's issue is something that affects all different people at all different levels. In fact, I'd say it's becoming a bit of an epidemic. So uh, Stressed at Work says, help me, Julian. I like any letter that starts like that. I find it impossible to switch off after work. I check my Blackberry all the time. I print off work to read on the train home and spend lots of time on my computer when I get at home. Last night I was checking work on my laptop in the kitchen as I was cooking my dinner. It's not helped by the fact my boss expects me to be constantly in touch. It's not like he explicitly asked me to, but it's the snide remarks like, didn't you see that email I sent you last night? I just can't rest easy. I am the only one doing this role. And if the work doesn't get done, it's down to me. Please help. What can I do? Well, stressed at work. First of all, I'm going to I'll go back to a point I make all the time, but I'm going to approach it from a different angle. We're paid to be at work, and when we're at work, we absolutely should be focused. However, one thing to be really clear about is when we're not at work, we're not being paid for it. It's not our job to do it. It's necessarily outside of work hours. Now, obviously, that's not realistic unless you're in a very manual role. Of course, there is always going to be things that slip into your work time. But I think it's really important to set up a barrier, if you like, around your day And I would say that probably an hour either side of work. So an hour in the morning before you get to work and an hour when you leave work. Of course, there's always going to be exceptions that creep outside of those rules. But generally, um, I would try as, as hard as possible to create a discipline in your life. It's then really good idea to organize your day so that you're getting everything done in work time that you can possibly do. So there's not those uh, extra things hanging over into the evening. However, having said that, I just accept that certain days are going to be busier than others. Friday is press day on a magazine. So I would always accept that Thursday was going to be a, you know, going to be a busy night and I wouldn't make plans on Thursday night. But to counterbalance that, I was out the door (laughs) you know, on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Friday, certainly. So, of course, all of us have to make some sacrifices in our personal lives for our work. But I suppose I'm saying it's more about taking control of those sacrifices so work can get off me once I'm out of the the office. Because you know what? The world isn't going to end. Nothing's going to fall apart. No one's going to die. But I appreciate, I totally appreciate this is difficult to do because, you know, you've got a boss, as you say, uh, stressed at work, who is saying, didn't you see that email last night? You have to challenge your boss on what their expectation is, because until you do that, you're going to be constantly worrying that you're not doing the right thing. And so if they say to you, I, you should be looking at your email every night, you should be do, answering work telephone calls, then there's two things that you can do. The first thing is what do you say to them? 
I've got to be honest with you, I find it really hard switching off from work. I get very stressed and it's overwhelming my life. Just be really honest. Everyone's a human being. Everyone will understand that, you know, a boss especially, that their junior team rely on them as a parent figure to look after them as well. That's part of their role. It's part of what they should be doing as a boss. Um, So that's one thing to do. And the other is just to keep a note of what they say and keep a note of all of the extra hours that you're doing because the next time you go for promotion or the next time you go for a job, you can demonstrate I've done all of these things and therefore I'm putting in these extra hours into work and I'm worth that much more money as a result of that because you're giving them your free labour. And remember that, they're only paying you for a certain amount of time. Quite often on a Friday, if I've had a really a particularly hard week, I will just drop in to a back massage place for 15 minutes to have a chair massage on my neck and my shoulders. And what happens is I generally just fall asleep within two seconds of sitting down. And then 15 minutes later, I kind of come around having had my shoulders and neck pummeled the life out of them. And I feel and I feel like the weekend started and I've left the week behind. It's the same thing as when I go on holiday. It's a really brilliant trick, actually, a friend of, me taught, a friend of mine taught me years ago, and it's so good. He used to say to me that as the plane took off and as the plane went through the clouds, he would imagine the clouds holding back in London all of the problems and all of his work worries. And so when he was up above the clouds, he was like, well, that's it, I'm on holiday now. And actually, another great thing about flying, because I'm sure lots of you going on holiday at the moment, is... Being in the air, being up in the kind of blue skies above the clouds is an absolutely brilliant time to get perspective on your life and get perspective on work and to write lists about your ambitions for the next year, your ambitions for the future and some rules about, you know, things that you are and aren't prepared to tolerate when you get back to work. That's my little side holiday tip there. That's a bonus. I won't charge for that. So to sum up, I'd say take control of your life. And remember, it's an important thing, it's your life. If you don't do it, then no one else is going to do it. So if it then be- continues to become a problem, I'd say you need to talk to your boss and you need to set up, set up some very firm parameters around what is and isn't expected of you. That was Creative Director at Bauer, Julian Lindley, on winding down once you've clocked off. If you've not been invited for interviews since England won the World Cup or have a boss that makes Naomi Campbell look easy to get on with, post your burning questions in the comments section below or over in our careers forum. One for all the arts grads among you now, Ali has some highlights from the What Can I Do With a Degree in Art Q&A. Yeah, interesting about um, how you can use these creative skills. Um, One of our panellists pointed out that creativity is sometimes overlooked in the country as a skill, but more and more employers are actually looking to hire creative thinkers uh, that can add a valuable dimension to their workplace. And there's some obvious routes, like advertising, galleries and community arts. But they're saying, you know, there's other areas as well, like social care even. It might be a possible route in through art therapy. And social care providers might be looking for freelance artists to kind of come in, give workshops and deliver projects. You know, so think outside the box a bit there because people are looking for those skills. And also even the public sector, there has been a bit of interest in looking at ways to innovate in this difficult economic climate. So organisations are looking for creative thinkers. So, you know, that might be an avenue to follow. And another one is digital technology, which we've talked about recently as well. Um, You know, that's combining two different kind of things they meet creative 
skills and technical people. And I thought this was quite an interesting tip, really. He said, if you're an arts graduate with any understanding of software programming, why not get together and try and develop a killer app or something, get a few people together with the same skills? Definitely a good market to get into. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. You know, and he's saying, well, think of it as product design, you know, use, think outside again of those, just, you know, your skills you've learned in university, look how they can really fit into the market at the moment. And last of all, there's some advice really about how hard it can be. And, you know, there's some advice, really try and grow yourself thick skin. And, you know, it's horrible if you knock back or you don't get the opportunity you're looking for, but be tough, don't take it personally, you know, and trying to learn from the advice and criticism you get about your work and kind of try and bounce back. Because I think... So if you want to make yourself a name as an artist, I think you're going to have to go through these sort of troughs until you kind of make that breakthrough. So, you know, just get back on your feet and try again if you're you're not a successful first time. Now, surveys of the graduate recruitment market seem more plentiful than graduate jobs at the moment. In recent weeks, two major reports have been released looking into the state of the grad job market, the numbers of applicants going for jobs and which sectors are or aren't employing. The High Flyers graduate job market in 2010 survey, for example, found that as many as 270 of you are going for each role in some sectors. And as if that wasn't tough enough, the Association of Graduate Recruiters 2010 report found that 78% of employers are insisting on a 2-1 before they even consider a candidate. So for anyone wondering where all the graduate opportunities are, And where they can go next, we've invited the bigwigs from both organisations to come in and offer some encouraging advice to hopefully ease your pain. First, I'm joined by Martin Birchall, Managing Director of High Flyers Research. Hello, Martin. Thank you for coming in. Um, We wanted to talk to you about the two sets of surveys that have come out. There's been your own from High Flyers and one from the Association of Graduate Recruiters. Now, you found that there was 45 graduates on average going for each role. And the ADR, 70 on average going for each role. And I mean, regardless of the difference, it's quite scary. I think, I think if I was a graduate, I'd be a bit worried. Tell us about your view of the market based on your research. Okay, over the last three weeks, we've spoken to 100 of the country's biggest and best-known graduate employers. Um, the news from them has been gradually improving over the course of 2010. So we've spoken to them three times during this recruitment cycle. And the end-of-season result is that they're looking for uh, very nearly 18% more graduates uh, than they took on in 2009. So it means that for the first time in three years, uh, we have seen an improvement in graduate prospects, but just at those top end uh, major employers who are hiring this year. So not quite as gloomy as perhaps graduates might feel, because I know if I'd have seen that research, I'd be very worried about my prospects. Certainly the headlines this this week have seemed quite bleak. Uh, It sounds like most of the graduate employers have finished recruiting for this year and that, uh, as you mentioned, application levels have been sky high. Um, I think things are a little bit more positive in the sense that um, some of the big names do still have vacancies for people who are looking for jobs uh, starting this September. And I think if if, uh, anybody graduating over the next few weeks, uh, if they look beyond some of the more obvious household names, what they're going to find is there will be vacancies at some of the smaller and medium-sized businesses, perhaps uh, on a regional basis. And they're the organisations who get back in touch with local universities uh, to advertise those vacancies. So it's well worth staying in touch uh, with your careers service at the uh, different universities around the country. What other advice do you think you'd give to graduates, apart from sort of maybe looking regionally and looking beyond the 
big name employers. I think one of the traps that people often fall into is trying to link the degree subject they've been studying to the eventual job they move into. And uh, one of the things which is very apparent at the moment is that about 80% of graduate jobs, it doesn't matter what you've studied, as long as you come away with um, a good degree um, and have got a, a reasonably full CV, um, then employers from a wide range of different destinations will be interested in recruiting you. Um, so it means that if you've studied something like history or geography, it doesn't mean you have to stay within those areas. You can go off and be an accountant or work in banking um, or even go and work for one of, the, one of the commercial companies in something like marketing or sales. You mentioned accounting there. I mean, it's looking a bit brighter, isn't it, in those sectors? I think if we had to pick out the sectors that are doing best at the moment, um, most of the financial areas, be it banking or accountancy, they were the first to be hit during the recession. And now two years on, what we're seeing is that many of those companies are stepping up their recruitment. And just since Christmas, the top six accounting firms have added nearly a thousand extra vacancies uh, to their recruitment. So most of them are still recruiting uh, in the summer months. So there are still some jobs to be caught you know, for this September. OK. And what do you think about sort of going forward in the next few years that we're going to see? Um, I'm reasonably confident that graduate recruitment has now turned a corner. We talked to the 100 employers um, who took part in in this latest exercise for 2010, and three quarters of them said that they'd been maintaining or expanding their recruitment for 2011. Uh, And of those who who, uh, uh, don't fall into that category, many are are undecided. So uh, it seems to me that things are much more positive now uh, than they have been at any time uh, over the last two years, and that thankfully for graduate recruitment, the recession does seem to be coming to an end. Yeah. Um, Why have the headlines been so bad this year, do you think? Well, I think we're dealing with two things. The first is that we have a record population of graduates coming out of university. It's it's well over 300,000 for the first time. And in the 15 years that I've been researching the graduate market, those numbers have virtually doubled. So it means that it was always going to be competitive to land a job this year. But of course, there is something in the region of 40 or 50,000 graduates from the class of 09 who didn't find work 12 months ago. And they, of course, have been competing for jobs this year as well. So that's a, that's a real double whammy in terms of this year's job hunters. Um, and the, 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 the huge volume of applications that employers have received. Do you have any projections for what sort of level of growth you might expect next year? I think that um, employers are back to where they were in roughly 2006. Um, the peak of the, the market over the last decade was 2007. Um, so I'm reasonably confident that we could expect growth of perhaps 10 or 15% um, for, for next year. But the one fly in the ointment, uh, I think, is inevitably going to be the public sector, who are facing some quite significant cuts uh, and are likely to be scaling back on graduate recruitment. So although the private sector may be doing better, uh, the public sector um, may be faring less well. So look elsewhere for those opportunities, as you said. Um, I I think one of the things that's been interesting following graduate recruitment over the last two years is just how flexible many students have been. So at the first signs of trouble in the city, uh, many people then look to some of the uh, major industrial or manufacturing companies. Um, Further into the recession, they then fell into difficulties uh, and people look to the the public sector. Um, Now, of course, they may be looking elsewhere going forward. So I think people have you know, taken on board all the messages from the media and all the warnings um, in the papers in terms of um, uh, some of the areas which are, uh, you know, in, in, in real difficulty. All right. Thank you very much. Hopefully see you again. Thanks very much. Now I have Carl Gilliard, Chief Executive of the ADR, on the phone from Warwick. Hello, Carl. Hello there. Thanks for having a chat with us today. I'm going to get straight into my first question. So you released your ADR recruitment survey this week. And I've got to say, if I was a graduate coming out 
into the job market, the headlines probably would have scared me a little bit. I mean, the findings such as 70 rivals are going for every job and that large numbers of employers are looking for 2-1 from applicants. I mean, the headlines are pretty bleak. Is it as bad as it sounds, would you say? Well, um, it's not good. The results were a bit disappointing. Last year, we had a fall in graduate level vacancies of around 9%. This year, we were hoping perhaps that we might have turned the corner. And indeed, some sectors have. Um, Banking, for example, overall has increased its intake quite significantly. But when you look across the board, the prediction is that we're going to have even fewer jobs than last year. And it's that that's driving up the number of applications for vacancies because the demand for graduate level jobs uh, remains high. And in fact, class of 2010 are competing with the graduates from 2009 and perhaps even 2007 and 8. The other thing that perhaps explains the 70 rivals for each uh, job is that um, graduates are actually applying for more jobs. So they're putting in more applications, and that in itself is driving up the average per vacancy. So there really isn't much alternative for graduates. You do have to recognise it's a competitive market, and I suspect it's going to remain competitive for some time to come. We also interviewed Martin Birchall from MD of High Flies Research and they've also released uh, a survey in the last couple of weeks about the graduate recruitment market. And their report, although it also noted that the application rates were sky high, um, but when we spoke to him, he said that he felt that the grad market had actually turned a corner. Um, is this the peak now, do you say? Um, and is, it com- is the recession going to be coming to an end for graduates soon? Um Right. Well, first of all, um, you know, why do we get two different sets of results? Our survey is significantly larger than high flyers, and it covers, therefore, a much wider range of sectors. We've actually got um, employers from across 18 different sectors responding. So I think that partly explains why you're getting different interpretations of what's happening in the market. The comment I made earlier that some sectors, banking, I recall, uh, business services, accountancy, vacancies in those sectors are up. So there is some good news tucked away in and amongst all the doom and gloom. But when we look forward, there are two things I'd have to say. The first is that I've rarely known the market be as volatile as it is now. And that's because the economy is so volatile and there are so many uncertainties about the direction in which the UK economy and indeed the global economy is going to go. And you can see that reflected in you know, stock market shares. So when you get that uncertainty, it's very hard to actually predict what direction we're going to go in. In the UK, we have the added complication of the coalition government emergency budget which is talking of cutting back significantly on public expenditure. Now, this is clearly going to impact on the jobs market, so we have to wait and see what impact that might have. So it almost seems like you're suggesting that it hasn't really turned a corner and almost that it could get worse. Well, I've not got a very good crystal ball <laughs> and, oh. and I am re- well I'm reluctant to 
say things that might actually make graduates feel worse. And I've been in this game for 20 years now, and in the previous recessions, graduates have shown tremendous resourcefulness and resilience. You know, they've adapted their uh, career goals, they've become more flexible, and many graduates actually, even in the good times, haven't gone straight into a graduate-level job. So I think it's really important that we do give uh, graduates a sense that there is still hope out there. Um, there are jobs out there. The graduates just have to work that much harder, do their research, find out where the vacancies are, make sure that they put really first-class applications forward, and that they are honest enough to sort of look at, well, you know, what's preventing me from getting a job, not just economy, but other things that I could be better at? You know, could I develop my skills more? Um, am I applying for the right kinds of jobs? Am I being, you know, setting my sights just a bit too high? Am I not being mob as mobile as I ought to be in this current climate? You know, it is difficult. It's not your fault. You happen to be graduating in, in a difficult year. But it's really important that you face up to the economy as it is. You say sort of about not to set your sights too high. I'm going to read out a, a quote that was from the Education Guardian, a story that you contributed to. Um, Any employment is better than no employment, even if it's about flipping burgers or stacking shelves rather than being sat at home feeling sorry for yourself and vegetating. Mm. There are lots of other skills required and valued, like people skills. You could be on a counter in a store. It's all about building up your skills base. And do you think that that sort of suggestion might be demoralising for some graduates, you know, being pointed in the direction that's kind of away from their studies? Or do you think as an employer you'd value somebody that had gone out there and just got any work that they could? Any work is better than no work. And those of us in the business know that if you're in employment, it's easier to find another job than if you're unemployed. And it does strengthen your CV. So the, the latter part of your question, I think, related to you know what, are, what yeah. impresses employers. What and, their view of somebody Well, I could tell you this, that, that sort of you know, I've, been re- I've been recruiting people for over 30 years. And if I'm looking at a CV um, of a graduate um, who graduated, let's say, last year, and it's, there's a blank from the day they graduated until now, And then I compare that with another where the individual uh, graduated at the same time, uh, got a very similar degree, but over the past four months has done a combination of temporary work, voluntary work, attended some skills training courses, and know which CV would impress me the most. Mm -hmm. When I was... uh, uh, entered the labour market, had a job to go to, so I didn't apply for any more, went away to work for the summer, came back, and they'd offered the job to somebody else and they'd started. So I actually found myself in September uh, unemployed. I've never forgotten, you know, that sense of being unemployed and this sort of gradual thought registering in my mind of hopelessness. If you're in work, then, you know, you're keeping busy, you're making contacts, you are developing your skills, you're earning money, and that is a far better position to launch yourself into a career than than doing nothing. It's just about knowing that when you wake up in the morning, you've got something to look forward to. 
Thanks again to Martin Birchall from High Flies Research and Carl Gilliard of the Association of Graduate Recruiters. Time for some top jobs now. Joining us from the Guardian Jobs team this week, Jefferson Davis returns to help Ali reveal the art chart. Kicking off the countdown at 10, it's a gallery assistant with Connaught. At 9, we've a Mayfair art dealer looking for a PA. It's the head of interior design at the University of Glasgow at 8. While at 7, the City of London Corporation is looking for a principal curator. Know your anklets from your earrings at 6. It's Professor of Accessory Design at the Savannah College of Art. In at 5, Adlib need an art director. And at 4, the Arts Council needs a senior manager. Netta Porter are looking for a junior retoucher at 3. While at 2, it's a digital art director for recruitment consultancy, The Book. But this week's Mona Lisa is curator at the Open Eye Gallery in Liverpool. For more info on those roles and lots more, you can visit guardianjobs.co.uk. As always, we'll tie up the show with some dates for your diary. Ali, what have you got for us? Okie doke. 13th of July, we've got Getting On To Graduate Schemes in the Civil Service Fast Stream, for anyone that's interested in that. 14th of July, What Else Can A Journalist Do? And then the 15th of July, we've got a guide to freelancing, and that's in the media and public relations, if anyone would like to know more about that. And finishing off the week, 16th of July, we've got the first in a series of Filling the STEM Skills Gap, which will concentrate on clean tech careers. And that's it for this week. Thanks very much to our guests, Martin Birchall and Carl Gilliard, Julian Lindley, Jefferson Davis from Guardian Jobs, and of course, Harriet Minter and Ali White. I'm Kerry Eustace. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. Until next week, goodbye.